Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Sunset Boulevard from 1950 with my wonderful guest, Daniel Strauss. All right. Welcome to the show. We have Daniel Strauss here today. Thanks for being here. Hi, Sarah. It's Hi. great to be here. I'm I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy to have you. Um, so this week we watched Sunset Boulevard, 1950. Daniel, what were your thoughts? I mean, I I love this movie. I picked this movie. You know, when you asked me to do the show, yeah. I was like, have you done Sunset Boulevard? And you're like, no, I haven't done it yet. I'm not crazy about it. And I was like, well, I love it. So this is a movie for me that like I could watch it probably every day and not get tired of it. It's in my my top five all time favorites. So short answer, I loved it. This time watching it, I actually really loved it as well. I feel like my thing about this movie is it's not that I don't love it, but it's just not one of my favorites. And I've never been able to put my finger on why until this last viewing. But it's like, it's such a well done, well made film that when I was doing it for this podcast and just like taking notes and pausing and doing all that, it was so pleasant to watch because it's so well thought out and well done. So you're constantly with a critical eye noticing like, oh yeah, that's great. That's great too. All of these things tie in. That's wonderful. I really appreciated it the most I've ever appreciated this movie in this last viewing. And that was because of you. So thank you for choosing this and having me watch this film again. Good. I'm very glad to hear that. Yes. No, I really did appreciate it the most this time. I was looking at it through technical elements and I was like, whoa, these technical elements are great. I mean, technically, you won't find a better movie. So, okay, we're going to do the plot synopsis of this film, Sunset Boulevard, uh, which was made into a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and won the Tony for Best Musical in 1995. True story. Really? Yes, it won the Tony because the 90s before Rent were kind of rough in musical theater. There was not a lot going on. And um, yeah, Patti Lapone, it's a whole story. Oh my God, even before we're doing the plot synopsis, let me tell you, Patti Lapone was in the London version and it was only doing okay. And Glenn Close was in the LA version and she got rave reviews. So they kicked Patti out for the Broadway version and they put Glenn Close in and they lowered the key and Patti was pissed and she wrote about it in her biography and I read it or her autobiography. But yeah, you might've even heard songs from it. Have you ever heard like Sunset so. Boulevard, Raging Boulevard? No. No, no, no. I don't. Have... I, this isn't something I need that I feel the need to go into wait, at all. Wait, none of this is making the podcast, by the way. But have you ever heard the song that's like, um, the, the early morning madness, the magic in the making? Dum, dum, yeah. Dum, dum, 
bum, 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 bum. that's when Norma yeah. Desmond is back in the studio looking around. And that's all Both I can think when I watch that scene. Sound like they're from other things and that the Sunset Boulevard musical just took them and like sang over other songs with their own lyrics. Well, they just sound like Andrew Lloyd Webber songs that he was like, This is an Andrew Lloyd Webber song. Put words to it. It's a it's a plot now. You know? All his songs oh, kind of have really? that sound. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And maybe think yeah. I'm thinking it sounds like Joseph. Yeah, because he wrote Joseph. Yeah. No, that would do it. Anyway, yeah. So again, none of this made the podcast, but I'm glad we got well, to talk about it. Yeah, deeply um, uninteresting. <laughs> deeply uninteresting, unless you're me. Um, so, Sunset Boulevard, 1950. It's a noir film, but it's also, like, kind of a comedy and kind of a little bit of a horror film. It's got so many wonderful elements that are blended and combined beautifully together. We hear a narrator. He's describing the scene. Police are heading to a house. They're on the homicide squad. It's 5 a.m. We see a dead body floating in the pool. We see the face of that dead body. We know that William Holden is the star of this film, and we know that that's William Holden. So we're like, oh, shit. Is William Holden dead? What's going on? Oh, my God. And it's got this vibe of, like, we know it's going to be a tragedy, but it's so quirky that we're intrigued. And I think the first 10 minutes of the film are so much fun. We kind of get a glimpse into his life. He's a writer who's struggling. He's about to lose his car, which in Los Angeles is a pretty big deal because you need a car to get around. Um, he had some hits in the past, but lately he hasn't had a hit. He tries to get money for his car by going to a producer of Paramount to sell a script. A sassy script girl comes in and says, hey... This script sucks. Don't pick it. And he's like, thanks, lady. I might fall in love with you later, but whatever. So um, he has no success in pitching a script. He tries to get money from his agent. No dice. No one will help him out. The agent says the most obnoxious rich man thing ever, which is like, writers write better on a starving stomach or something like that. I, I hate that. That's just stupid. Or you could help him and he could write as well. You're rich. You're literally on a golf course in Beverly Hills. Shut up. That's how I felt watching that part. Yeah, so, I, think you're, I think you're right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> sure. um, so he leaves. Uh, as he's leaving, he's in his car and he sees like the repossession people who tried to collect his car earlier on the other side of the road. And they see him. And he's like, oh, no, they're going to take my car from me right now because I lied to them and told them my friend had my car. I've got to book it. So he starts to drive real fast. But he gets a flat tire, so he pulls into a secluded driveway in the 10,000s on Sunset Boulevard. And I looked up the location of that, and it's just in Beverly Hills by the Beverly Hills um, Country Club. I looked it up because I wanted to know. Because Sunset Boulevard's so sure. long, you know? Very long. So he pulls into the secluded driveway, and it just happens to have an open garage. So he pushes the car in the open garage. And then he kind of, like, walks in, and he's greeted by this man, Max, who's very strange and, like, German. I was going to say foreign, but there's a better word for that. He's Austrian or German or something. And um, the first line that Max says to him, I just want to point this out because, oh boy, it's full circle. It's something like, if you need help with the coffin, let me know. That's the first line Max says to him, and he's going to die. So anyway, he goes in this house. He notices it's very, um, I think he describes it as like Miss Haversham-ish, just... A beautiful large mansion made from long ago, totally overrun and like decaying and grotesque. That's a word I would use to describe this film a lot, grotesque. And he meets Norman Desmond, who is absolutely terrifying. And at first we see her through like a shade and she's wearing glasses and she looks like the invisible man. 
He meets her. She thinks he's there to help bury a monkey for a monkey funeral. He is not. He just got lost and tells her this. It ends up coming up that she's written this insane script about Salome that's like a billion hours long. She used to be a glamorous movie star in the silent era from the 1920s and now is just like living in this mansion, isolated and alone with her manservant, Max. And um, he kind of gets this idea of like, oh, you know what? She's got this script. I need money. Maybe I'll try to like milk her for a few bucks. He's going to try to like use her. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) So yeah, they start working on this insane script together. She's like, you will move into my house. I will have my manservant collect your things. You live here now. Ha ha ha. She doesn't do it with his consent, which should have been a big red flag for him, but of course is not. So he's like living with Norma Desmond, writing this insane script for her. Eventually... She starts getting really suffocating and possessive of him and wants to have a romantic relationship with him. And he is like, I don't think so. I don't really want this. And he tries to escape her one night. Like it's New Year's Eve and she's like, I want to have sex with you. And he's like, ew, gross. No, you're 20 whole years older than me, which doesn't matter for men. But of course, in Hollywood, totally matters. Apparently, if you're a young man and there's a woman. So anyway, he goes to this party, sees his friend Artie, who's a super sweet dude. Also played by Jack Webb, who does Dragnet, which I think is fascinating. The girl that was rude to him in the first scene happens to be Artie's girlfriend. And they happen to have this, like, manic pixie dream girl conversation where she's just perfect for him and, like, knows somehow and fulfills his every intellectual need. And um, she's like, hey, guess what? You could write a screenplay with me. But instead of being open to working with and writing a screenplay with a woman right away, he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, okay. He calls Sunset Boulevard to be like, hey, Max, I'm done. And I need my stuff. And you're going to deliver it to me. And Max is like, Norma Desmond tried to kill herself because you left her. That's what's going on. The doctor's here. And he feels really bad about this. Um, Even though he shouldn't, because I think that's her choice. And this is clearly a manipulative ploy. (sighs) But whatever. So he goes back to Sunset Boulevard and thereby seals his fate. Because he pities her, he says, I guess I'll have sex with you. And then he becomes, quote unquote, a kept man. And this is a deep source of shame for him. Eventually what happens is he gets back in touch with this lady screenwriter. They start to write a screenplay together. They start to fall in love. Norma Desmond finds out, loses her shit. Oh my God, I skipped the most important part. How could I? Over the course of the film, she does go to a film studio because they want to rent her car for a film, but she doesn't know this. She thinks it's because they like her script and they want to use her in a film. And Cecil B. DeMille does not have the heart to tell her that he does not want to use her in a film. So she goes, thinking she's going to be great once again. Okay, so Norma finds out about this other girl. She's super jealous. She buys a gun. One night, she calls the girl and Joe hears her call the girl and he says, That's it, lady. We're done. Girl, Nancy Olson, whose name I can't remember character-wise, Betty Schaefer, you come here and you see my life. And she goes, okay. And so she does. And she sees how he's living. And she says, you can leave with me and escape. And he's like, no, I'm no good for you. Get out. So she leaves. And then he's like, well, I guess all that's left for me is to go to Ohio and become a writer in Ohio for a newspaper. That's a fate worse than this. So he goes to pack up his things. And Norma Desmond says, don't go. And he says, I'm going. Keep your fancy stuff. I'm leaving. And as he's leaving, she shoots him. She shoots him in the back. And he still keeps walking. So she shoots him in the back again. And then he turns around and she shoots him in the stomach. And then he falls in the pool. 
And then at the very end of the film, we go past his narration. And Norma Desmond has completely lost her mind. And there are police officers and reporters all over her house, in her bedroom, all over the place. And they're like, why'd you do it? And she is like in her own world. And she's putting on her makeup and making herself look glamorous. And she thinks she's headed for a movie set. And they set up the newsreel cameras at the bottom of her stairs and tell her like, Norma, you are playing this princess. You must come down. And so she glamorously, like a princess, descends the steps. And at the bottom, she says her very famous line, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. And then she becomes one with the celluloid. The celluloid and her become one. And the movie ends. And that was my very long plot synopsis. Well, there's a lot to say. There's a lot of important plot points to go over. And I think you hit pretty much all of them. I also think I might have picked up on a few of the things that you're not crazy about in the movie. Everyone loves this movie. Everybody does. Sarah, my friend who's on this podcast a lot, this is her favorite film of all time. And I've seen this movie with her. I've seen this movie on several occasions. It's up there for me. The way I feel about this movie is, I don't know if you've seen Pretty Woman, Daniel, but do you remember... In Pretty Woman, when Richard Gere is describing going to the opera with Julia Roberts, and he's like, you can appreciate it, but if you don't love it right away, it will never be part of your soul. Do you remember that part? I haven't seen it, but I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. That's kind of how this movie is for me, where it's like, the things that were holding me back from calling it my favorite, because I can acknowledge, like, this is an excellent film. I love it. I enjoy it. It's good, but it's not, like, one of my favorites. And I think it's because um, there's this double standard that is never allowed to be acknowledged. The world of this film is so self-aware about so many things, but it refuses to acknowledge the double standard of, like, for example, while I'm watching this film, all I can think about, not all I can think about, but a lot of what I'm thinking about is that this film was made in 1950. Mm -hmm. Gloria Swanson is the same age as Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart's career was thriving in 1950. He married a woman 25 years younger than himself and is lauded for this. She's wonderful and stunning, and we all love her and appreciate her. It's like this double standard that we have about those kind of gender roles and ageism in Hollywood that doesn't ever get really called out. And then also the whole thing about being a kept man deeply bothers me. The demasculization, I don't even, I can't say this word, demasculinization, demasculating. Sure, close enough. I, I know you yeah, I think so. That really bothers me because what I think when I watch this movie is that this film was made in 1950. And a lot of women at this time were essentially kept women. Like, they were not allowed to have bodily autonomy. They were, some of them probably controlled by their husbands, didn't have a way to make money for themselves. So to have, like, being a kept man be treated so flippantly, so unaware of, like, so many people living in that reality and how disgusting that reality is, like, doesn't vibe well with me. So I, mm. I get what they were saying in the movie, but it's like that, the grimy, the grossness of that people being kept no one should ever have to be kept for money ever be they man or woman and the acknowledgement of like ew it's gross when it's a man this is wrong but like oh women are allowed to be kept all the time that's totally normal i don't know to me that's like where the grossness of it lies yeah i understand what you're saying and contextually certainly putting it in the context of the time when it was made yes it would happen with the gender with the roles uh, reversed all the time i'm not sure that the movie itself is saying one way or the other that it's not okay because it's a man. To me, when I look at it, I look at it as this specific example where Norma Desmond, who is completely bonkers out of her mind, has sunk her claws into this guy who has his own bag full of problems 
right? And he cannot get out of it. It is unquestionably a bad thing. And I think that that can exist. And at the same time, you can say the other way around, it's not a good thing either. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I Obviously, I don't think there's too many movies about kept women that are like, isn't this a problem from the 1950s? I was thinking of like How to Marry a Millionaire. Their whole goal is to be kept women. It's like just this idea of like sure. a lot of housewives at this time would be watching the movie and essentially are kept women. Like don't have way of earning income for themselves, have to live in their husband's house and be like subordinate to their husband. So I think, again, the movie isn't saying this. These are just because right. that exists, like that's yeah. because this movie can't acknowledge that. That's kind of where my mind goes. And I think that's what keeps me from fully favoriting it. But I do hear what you're saying. Like, and this is a very smart movie. This movie was not made to be like a feminist comment on anything. So that's just me adding my own. No, although although I think, and I'm probably not the uh, the best person to speak on what <laughs> is a uh, feminist, but there are actually things about this movie that I think are more progressive. Staying on Norma Desmond for a second, he has that line where he's like, there's nothing tragic about being 50, not unless you try to be 25, which is like, Norma is beautiful. She is a beautiful woman. She still looks terrific. Norma, you're 50. You got to own it. You got to own the fact you're 50. The business has passed you by. You got to own that too. You got to move. You are a lunatic. You're living in the past and you can't seem to move on from it. That's that's Norma's problem. I agree with that. And um, I will say the only thing that's frustrating about that is like Humphrey Bogart gets to have a career in his 50s and she does not just because sure but Humphrey was hum let me and this um, I don't know the answer to this question but did Humphrey Bogart have a silent film career he did not really no like he became more prominent in the early 30s she had a hard time transferring With her it's more that she was a silent film star and when the I mean there's the part where she's she's at the studio oh this movie is so good it's, it's a she's wonderful film studio. it really is I'm not trying to disparage it <laughs> no yeah. no no you're not no yeah. no 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 no. nothing nothing can ruin yeah. this movie for me uh, well no something <laughs> I mean if, if you told me like actually after the film they would go and like eat children that was what crap service was provided <laughs> then I'd be like okay I'm not gonna watch it anymore they did not but, do that um yeah it's, so I don't have to worry about that um she's sitting on the sound stage and a microphone kind of brushes by her head and she just sort of slaps it out yes. of the way like that sort of subtlety in a in a film like this, like from this era, I feel like it was pretty rare. So anyway, her issue was she could not transition from silent movies to talkies. So yes, Humphrey Bogart is allowed to still have a career in his fifties, and there's yes. tons of those double standards that still exist yes. today. In in this particular instance, I think that the the issue with her is is more that she wasn't able to make that transition. They actually thought she looked too young and beautiful with William Holden, so they tried to age her up. Um, and what ended up happening was they decided to make her more glamorous so she would appear older because in real life she didn't look that much older than him. So they, they did certain things to make her look and feel older and they made certain things to make William Holden feel younger. And I actually kind of love that, that in real life when they put them together, they went, oh, they, they could be a couple. This isn't shocking to anyone. Yeah, the whole thing they could be a couple. I don't think that he's repulsed by her physically. I think he's, he recognizes that she's a crazy woman that's literally falling apart with a, a butler out of a horror movie. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think the problem is, is that he's allowing himself to be a kept man by this woman who really seems to be teetering on the edge of reality, which is pro which was probably the case the other way around too, plenty of times. This is an abusive relationship that he is in. Completely. Like an emotionally abusive relationship with someone that clearly has a personality disorder. I don't know which kind, 
probably several. Um, but yeah, sure. like he's clearly in an abusive situation. And I think something that this movie does well is is I think it shows how difficult it is to leave an abusive situation. Oh yeah. Like oh, we're yeah. watching this going run, run, run. And Just he go. can't, he feels like he can't. And he's like a strong person looking out for himself. So if a strong person looking out for himself can't leave an abusive relationship, what does that say about abusive relationships yeah. and your willpower within them? Every time that I watch this movie, when he goes to the New Year's party, I'm like, just stay at the party. Party's going to put you up on his couch. He's All you got to do is send for your things. Just stay at the party. Just don't mm -hmm. go back. Because the second he walks into that party, you're like, this is the best place on earth. I thought watching it this time, it reminds me of our like college parties. It's just great. There's two women on the telephone just laughing for no reason. They're just happy to be alive. It's just pure joy. And yet he goes back. He, you know, every time he gets in a cab and drives back to that dark, scary house. After that scene, when he says he's going to stay, when she literally takes her hands and digs her claws into him, yeah. uh, you know that he's, uh, he's done for. Speaking for a moment to the character of Betty Schaefer, I love Betty Schaefer. And, I, and part of what I love about Betty Schaefer is that she seems to be so much smarter than him. The first thing that we see her do is come into the room and be like, yeah, yeah, I read this script, but it's not worth your time. It's total trash. It's just garbage. The writer is just trying to make a buck. It's it's crap. And like when she talks about his other script where she's like, most of this script was crap, but you had like two or three pages about this teacher that were really yeah. good. He's like, oh, yeah, I had a teacher like that. She's like, yeah, that's why it's good. Like that feels so timeless to me yeah. as somebody who writes like i've written things before where i've literally been like well maybe this will sell i don't think it's that good but i might be able to get a meeting out of it or something and inevitably it ends up going on the shelf because if you're not writing about things that personally affect you people can sniff it out immediately i just love the way that she just like undresses him like in almost yeah. every conversation that they have earlier on in the film about his work. The reason that his writing career isn't going well is because you get the sense that he started out from a place of honesty, but then they kept turning his scripts about like the Oklahoma something or other and it became a story on a submarine. So he's so used to his stories being convoluted and this town has so deeply turned him into a cynic that he's lost that like root of authenticity he has that that line where she says something about like oh you wrote this thing that was good he goes yeah that was last year this year i'm trying to make a living yes you know yes. which is you know it's really hard to maintain a career in that industry and at a certain point you're like i don't care he even says he's like look i'm not trying to win an academy award okay it's a stupid baseball movie all right those pitches are almost never gonna catch because you're literally saying it's crap. Will you please just buy it? Yeah, you're grasping at straws. There are things that I like about her as a character and there are things that I don't like. And the things that I don't like are honestly just because I think that men crafted her in like a man's ideal image of what a woman could or should be on film. Do you know what I mean? It's like I was getting a manic pixie dream girl vibe from her sometimes, but I still, I like the character. I like what she represents. I like that she's a smart woman on film. I think she's clearly made to be antithetical to Norma Desmond. Like even, they were talking about the wardrobe, just their wardrobes. Peg, or I called her Peggy, that's not Peggy. Her name is Betty. Because you're, you're thinking of Nancy Olsen, Peggy Olsen. That's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking of. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Betty, what I'm Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, yeah no, Betty. Just the way they style her, dress her. I like that she's funny, but sometimes I feel like she's the kind of funny where it's like, what would be my perfect girl funny? 
And they're like, this perfect girl that enters. Ooh, look at the switchy, smart things. Look how cool she rolls with me. Like, it's that kind of feeling. At the same time, you're right. I love that she's opinionated. I love that she shares her opinions, especially in front of men. She's not intimidated by them. So yeah, for me, there's pluses and minuses with her character. I get it. And, and I don't want to be the guy who comes on the podcast and is like... <laughs> Um, excuse me, but that woman <laughs> character is good, woman. You just don't understand. Like, that's, I'm, a, I'm, I'm becoming aware that I'm dangerously close to that line right now. I just think she's smarter than him. She's obviously hungrier than him. She has that part where there, he sees her in the drugstore when he's supposed to buy the cigarettes. And she's like, hey, I don't want to read forever. I want to write. You know, I need you. Yeah. You're my ticket here. You know, and like yeah. that feels so real to me. And when she's yeah. like, Look, we can write on the weekends. We can we can write at night. What you know, I'm free all week. I don't care. I just want to do this. Like that is so admirable to me. Like that hunger and 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 I relate to it so much of someone being like, I don't care. I just I just want to do this. Even though I'm not getting paid, I just want to make make something. We have something here. Let's 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 do something with it. And she's the one who drives him to make it happen. So and the fact that you find out that she's actually from a picture family, you know, that her sort of lineage in Hollywood goes back. I just, she's she's one of my favorite characters in, in cinematic history. And you just named the things that I love about her. That's the thing. It's complicated for me with her because yeah, it's yeah. like, there are things that I do really love about her and you just named them. And I love that she does value like the authenticity of things. She's not, she doesn't want to sell out. She's got this very fresh focused perspective and she's a realist. I love her whole backstory about, I tried to be an actor. I got a nose job. It turned out I couldn't act. They love my nose, but they didn't like my acting. This is maybe also what it is too. The fact that she has to fall in love with him. It's almost like because she's so smart, you want her to be smart enough to see kind of what his, his brand is, the things that he's doing that are not healthy. I do like that this film shows us a very unlikable lead and still has us like him. He did, he's never super redemptive in general. She doesn't know about Norma, right? Yeah. She she just thinks he's this guy who the part at the party where he's going into the bathroom with her and Artie's like, "Hey, look, I said you could have the couch. I didn't say you could have my girl." And he's like, "Oh no, we're just gonna talk." And then like two seconds later, they're like mouth to mouth about to kiss. You're like, "Okay, okay, uh, <laughs> okay, Joe. That that's maybe that's maybe a little classless." But for yeah. the most part, like. She doesn't know about what's going on in his personal life. She just knows that he's and and the two of them are seeing each other at their best. They are getting together and working on the thing that they both do best writing. They're literally creating a love story together. I mean, that happens, <laughs> you know, like people who are working together on films end up together. You know, people who are writing together end up together because there's like this shared experience of of doing this thing that you both love and you i guess end up conflating it with the other person um so it you know it makes and and also like Artie's like you can tell he's like a, he's whatever like well he's got the line where he's like hey can you put in some extra props so there's an assistant director it's like this dude has no aspirations he's gonna be an assistant director like she has aspirations so of course she's more attracted to this guy who does more, who is interested in the thing that she's interested in. I mean, it's always made sense to me that these two are, are going to fall for each other. And then, you know, it doesn't even really end up happening, so. Yeah, because I think he understands on the deeper level that it would not be a good situation. Like, if they did fall in love, if they did get married, right. it would not last. It would not work out. Their relationship is not a solid thing. He's friends with Artie, too. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things about it. that he also, like, he knows he's a piece of crap. He's, he's like, 
you know what? It's too late. I've already done too much damage. I, I don't want to do any more. We were talking about earlier how she sees his idea and the beauty in his idea and is like, write what you know. And I was like, oh my God, this is basically just Little Women. Like he is Joe March and she is the German professor being like, Joe, I don't see you in this work. I can't do a German accent. That was right. What do you pretty know? Close. It's very close. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah. First of all, that's an excellent impression. Thank you. Um, Second of all, it's it's a timeless idea, right? Right, what you know. But she just says it so so bluntly. Yeah. She, I mean, she just dresses him down. I love that first scene where she's just telling Sheldrake, right, not knowing he's in the room, just like, yeah, it's garbage. The whole thing is trash. Yeah. Like, it's great. It's so yeah. good. And I love him too. She has an opinion, but Sheldrake has no opinion. And he even has that line about like, Joe says, you would have passed on Gone with the Wind if it was offered to you. And he was like, I did pass on Gone with the Wind. I didn't think the Civil War would sell. Who wants to see a Civil War picture, I said. Right? He's so funny. Yeah, I love that character. I wish he was in more of the movie. When he's when he starts, when he's like, "Can I have the three hundred bucks?" and he's like, "Let me explain something to you." <laughs> Last year, I mortgaged this to get it. Like, it's like you realize like how little things have changed. Like, even yeah. this dude who like sits behind a desk and has a cushy job at Paramount is like, "I can barely afford to live in this city." Yep. You know. But the agent who can afford it is like, "No, I don't really want to. I think you'll work better if you're starving." Sorry, babe. Yeah. Well, he can't get him on the phone, and then when he gets him on the phone, yeah, he's like, "Oh no, no, no! Being hungry is really good for." your creative process it's like oh screw you buddy i will say one of the reasons they chose nancy olsen for this role she hadn't done a lot before this is um billy wilder wanted this like very fresh energy that hadn't really been in a lot of pictures that hadn't been around this industry so she was chosen because that's kind of what she was like in life like this was very early on in her career for her and she had almost no experience so i mm. i kind of love that story about her but now i want to move into the things that i really like about this movie one of the things that i think is so 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 cool about this movie is that it's all based in our real world in real life like they're at a real movie studio paramount pictures they keep telling you they're naming real movie stars um norma desmond is not a real movie star but the woman that plays her gloria swanson really was a silent film star that really is her in the silent movie they watch in her house the other crazy part of that is Max is played by, oh God, how do you, it's like Eric von, what's his name? Eric von, Eric von Stroheim. That's his name. Eric mm. von Stroheim. The guy that plays Max really was a director in the silent film days and really directed Gloria Swanson. And not mm. only that, it's crazy. The picture that they watch, do you know this at all or no? Am I telling you for the first time? No, I knew that she was a silent film star. I didn't know he actually directed her. So he actually directed her. He was apparently difficult to work with. He always went over budget and was very like meticulous. That was his reputation. So one mm. of the movies they did together was called, oh, I forget, it's like Queen's Landing or Queen something. And it's the movie that they're watching in that scene. And apparently that film was never even released in the States until 50 years later because real life Gloria Swanson walked off the set of that film and Eric Vaden, whatever his name is, was the actual director of that film. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That, that's, so I love that they put all of that history and like Gloria Swanson in real life had a working relationship with Cecil B. DeMille. The name that he calls right. her in this is what he called her in real life. I think he calls her like little fella or something like that, right? Like his nickname for her is his real life nickname for Gloria Swanson. They did six pictures together in the silent film era. He's so good in He's this, too. He's so good in this. But that's they took a lot of real-life things and embedded them in this film. So it has this, like, real authenticity. The scene where Gloria Swanson is doing the Charlie Chaplin character, that's really how she came up in silent film. Where he's like, 
He's like, when she thought I was getting bored, she would put on the Norma Desmond Follies, and she's just like dancing around with an umbrella. Like, yeah. like what? It's this, this is insane. Like, that's one of the points in the movie where I'm like, this is crazy. You can't seriously sit here. And, and then she's like, give me the match. I got to make a mustache. And she comes back in. She dances around like Charlie Chaplin, totally untethered from reality. And that's when Max comes in. And he's like, oh, Paramount's on the phone for you. And she's got this stupid mustache on. Like, there's nothing funnier than that. That Like, that is one of the funniest scenes in cinematic history it's so the ridiculous reason it's in this film is because that's it was an homage to her real life because in real life the way Amazing. she got her start was like at 16 years old she was in these comedy shorts that were just like that so it was like the reason she can do those things and behave in that way was because she was doing that at 16. So they like put that specifically in this film for her. It ends up being this amazing moment. Totally in sync with reality. Yeah. The scene where you know, other old film stars are playing cards with her and you know Buster Keaton is at the table playing cards. I mean, yeah, it's like it walks the line between being a love letter and a hate note to the motion picture industry. Yeah. I mean- through his relationship with Betty, it makes you love everything and all the hope that is in the movie industry and Hollywood. And through his relationship with Norma, you see the other side of it and what it can do to people. It's that dichotomy that makes it so heartbreaking and fascinating yeah. to watch. And then, well, I guess my question then is like, what do you do with the Cecil B. DeMille's who never really die and never really they stay they they get to keep going. Betty says it's more fun behind the camera anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the sad reality of it is that if you're an actor in most cases you will have your moment and then people will move on the the era will change you will either come with it or you won't but directors agents writers the guy who's running the lights hog eye <laughs> who's the same guy who was running the lights on you know a yeah. lot of these people you know hang around and they're you know they're the lifeblood of this thing and they keep it moving but the actors shuffle in and out. They come and go. Yeah, they're 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 expendable. And the public forgets and the public moves on. I mean, when's the last time you saw a Steve Gutenberg movie? I, I not I'm not trying to throw Steve Gutenberg <laughs> under the bus. I actually really like Steve Gutenberg, but like, you know, his his moment and his kind of he was very big for he a was. while there. He was very, very big. He was. You know? And he's not so big anymore. <laughs> now Brad Pitt has been big for a really long time and it looks like he's gonna stand the test of time we're gonna be talking about him for probably another 15 years or so gutenberg it didn't work out well it did for a long there's time but there's also you know. a handsomeness leading man level that's different steve gutenberg is more comedic he's not so much a handsome leading man like brad pitt william holden's career goes on forever because he was a handsome generic leading man it seems like they let the handsome generic leading men work forever they let the meryl streeps work forever thank god but there's only like one of her all i think i wish is that they let women go as long as they let men go. That's my kind of career wish for women. That they and I feel like we're we're heading into that. Like that is. I was going to say, happen. do you think that that's changing? Yeah, I think, that's I think changing. we're watching yeah. it change. Um, yeah. yeah, that was that's it. Just because yeah, at this age, William Holden, his career is taking off, and he's thirty-two. Her at the same age, that's mm -hmm. when her career is declining. Like Gloria Swanson, real life versus William Holden. So. How old did you say she is in this movie? Fifty-one. She is fifty-one. Yeah. But again, it's an excellent film. Sure. The screenwriting is brilliant. Do you want to talk about Billy Wilder? I'd love to talk about Billy Wilder. I love Billy Wilder. So Billy Wilder wrote this as part of a screen team. Charles Brackett was his screenwriting partner. And they wrote several successful screenwriting items together. I think they wrote 14 films together. But they did a lot of like 
really good comedies. They did they did a lot of everything. Um, but some of the films they wrote together are um, Ball of Fire, Ninochka, Midnight, The Major and the Minor. So like some fun films in there. But this was their final collaboration. After this, they went their separate ways. Oh, The Lost Weekend they wrote together. That's a really big movie. So they were screenwriting partners, and I kept thinking of them when um, Betty and Joe were talking. I kept picturing, like, Charles yeah. Brickett and Billy Wilder and being like, I wonder which one's which. I bet you Billy Wilder is Joe. Like, that was where my head was going. Because Billy Wilder is more cynical. And Charles Brackett is more genteel and more, more elegant. They wrote really good films together, and they won Academy Awards together. Billy Wilder goes off on his own and has, like, an epic career. He makes Double Indemnity. Well, technically he made Double Indemnity with Raymond Chandler and he made it earlier, but that's fine. He does Double Indemnity, um, Ace in the Hole, Stalag 17, Sabrina, Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, The Front Page. Witness for the Prosecution is an unbelievable movie. And we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about Sunset Boulevard. But just to anyone out there who hasn't seen it, like, you will not believe how good this movie is by modern standards. Like... That's the only movie I've ever seen where at the end, they're like, at the end of the movie, there's like a title card that comes up. And it says, please don't tell anybody how this movie ends because we don't want anybody to know. And, it, you know, this is like obviously far predating the Internet. But just being like, when you walk out of the theater, please just keep it to yourself. And my God, I hope people did because I did not see any of that coming. Anyway, go see that movie. I was in that play in high school. So that movie will forever be ruined for me just because I was it's in the play version of it. In high school, you know what I mean? Where you're bad. like, I can't, I can't yeah, watch this yeah, anymore. I get it. Um, but it's great. I hear you. But yeah, again, totally ruined by high school. Thanks, high school theater That's program. Yeah, that'll do it. But they actually also yeah. did that. They do that in the play in London, The Mousetrap, which is the play that the longest running play in London. It's an Agatha Christie play. They do that at the end of that play mm -hmm. too. And I actually wonder if that came first and they started doing it for the play. So they put it in the movie when they made the movie. Maybe. I loved it. Billy Wilder came from Germany. He was a German Jew. He left right before the Holocaust. His family was killed in Auschwitz. Like his mother, like all the relatives that stayed behind. So like, thank God he got out. But like in Hollywood, we have so many wonderful, wonderful directors and screenplay writers who came to this country from Germany, not knowing the language and end up doing brilliant things. But we don't honor the fact that like they left everything behind and all the people they knew died. And if they had stayed there, they would die too. Like we have all of these epic Hollywood movies because of these people. And I don't think we honor enough like what they left and that they were Jewish and that like we have these films because they got out of Germany. Yeah, that's a good point. They probably weren't as loud about it back well, then. Well, yeah, they all changed their names and, you know, Americanized themselves. Um, right. And that's why I think he worked with Charles Brackett and other writers for so long was because this is not his first language. Like Charles Brackett went to Harvard, you know, he's like a Scottish yeah. descent kind of person. So, yeah, I think that's what happened here. And you see so much German expressionism in this film, too. Like a lot of the shots are really reminiscent of that when it's you're really close up on um, Max's hands when he's playing the organ, these kind of distorted views oh. of things when people are um, their faces are tight in the foreground uh, and the shot reverse shots of things. And then when you get certain angles that are up high or down low based on how they want you to feel that stairwell when he comes in, the, the, the stairwell leading from the foyer up the stairs, every time he goes up and it feels like it has more steps, just takes him 
so much time to get up those stairs. Well, and the spookiness, like it's totally a noir. They wanted to make it in color. And he was like, nah, brah, this is noir. It needs to be white and black. Shadow. Yeah, I mean, you said it earlier. The movie kind of just has everything. Mm -hmm. It has elements of horror. It has comedy, drama, noir. Like it really is like, it's one of those movies where you just run the gamut of emotions watching this thing. So, like a, a movie that to me was similar was like Parasite. Parasite yes. is a movie where like one minute I was laughing and the next minute I was scared and then I was, you know, crying. And it was like, how did they do all that? Like, what is the genre of this film? Like, you can't really pin anything on it. Um, and I think that I do think that this film, I know it's technically a noir, but I, I feel that it kind of transcends the traditional noir partially because of the, I mean, the sort of, the, the you know, the femme fatale being an aged film star. The whole thing just feels so modern to me. It just feels so incredibly ahead of its time. And at the same time, if they remade it today, I wouldn't want to see it because it could only exist in this moment. Although I think Parasite is an excellent comparison because that movie, I loved it, but it so deeply unnerved me. You know, like it hit this weird chord with everybody, I think. When you saw that movie, you kind of were like a wreck on your insides. And this movie has that feel of like, there's this insidious grotesque griminess underneath the surface of what's happening and it's driven by poverty it's driven by there are factors at play I, oh yeah i think that's a really really good comparison daniel good work that's spot I'm on i'm trying feel my best over here but I, I i think that like it's it's so difficult to tell a story about uh, behind the curtain of hollywood and make it interesting because it's like tons of actors or like fresh writers. That'll be the first thing they write of like, well, here's my story as an actor or writer. Yeah, that's actually not very interesting to most of the general public. Yeah. But this is the rare movie that is able to be critical of Hollywood, peel the curtain back on Hollywood and still tell a story that uh, that transcends that and, and is interesting and captivating to anybody who would see it. It's so inside but it manages to welcome everybody in. And that amazes me about it. Yeah. There are moments in this film where Wilder and Brackett land some punches that are just like unbelievable one-liners that have stayed with me for my entire life. One of them being the, that was last year, this year I'm trying to make a living. Another one is the nothing tragic about being 50, not unless you try to be 25, but the one, the, my favorite line in this entire movie is when he's he's lying on the couch and he says, I think it's right after the Norma Desmond Follies. He says, audiences don't know somebody sits down and writes a picture. They think the actors make it up as they go along. It's so true. It's so true. Most people will walk out of a movie and think, boy, those two lead actors really did a good job making up that film as yeah. it was taped. And it's like, Somebody sits down for like two or three years a lot of the time and pours their heart into this thing into fine tuning every second of it, every moment of it, which they did with this script. There's not a wasted yeah. line in this movie. Every single line, like you said at the beginning about uh, let me know if you need any help with the casket. Everything yeah. is foreshadowing. Everything is setting up something else. Everything is a metaphor. That line has just always stuck with me that like that it's so clearly the writer getting a dig in there on the audience while they're watching the movie and they don't even know it you know so 
there's so many different layers in this movie. And like, I feel like every time I watch it, I find something new about it. Did you find anything new this time that stuck out to you? Yeah, there was a line when he first goes up into the guest house and he's looking out at the house and he says that the house, it was suffering from a kind of creeping paralysis, like it was crumbling apart in slow motion. I just hadn't noted that line before. And it's like, holy cow, it's the whole movie. It's Norma. She has a, she's crumbling apart. She's literally falling apart in slow motion. Not only that, this is what the motion picture industry is doing to the actors involved in yeah. it. They think that they're moving up, but in fact, it, at some point that's going to break and they're going to come back down in slow motion. There's just so, so much to, to pick apart in it that I, I feel like I'll watch it over and over and over again and, and still miss stuff. I probably did this time too. There's a part when he's right after she's cut her wrist and he comes back to the house and he's like about to run upstairs and Max is like, oh, careful. The musicians mustn't know what happened. Why? What I noted about the musicians being there was I was like, okay, hold the phone. Hold on. Wait. So she's crazy bananas rich. She's let everything go to shit in her house. Like there's overgrown vines and all this stuff because she doesn't want people around, but she'll hire musicians. This is her big night with him. She's throwing a party. It's all for him. It's a fantasy. It's a crazy fantasy world. She cleaned up everything. This is her big New Year's party. She's invited no one. She's a lunatic. She's (laughs) hired a band. They're going to play for the two of them and then this is going to be her magical night she's crazy i yeah i mean you know this would be like back page news like the musicians would be like what happened oh that's terrible well anyway you have to pay us oh god (laughs) when hogeye turns the light on her two things about that scene first of all (laughs) there's a guy who like it's like rippling through everybody there and they're like Norma Desmond oh my gosh it's Norma Desmond Norma Desmond which is like really nice like they're you know they remember her on this like that's actually a heartwarming moment that so many of those people remember and the way that DeMille talks about her is really sweet too but then there's one dude who goes Norma Desmond I thought she was dead yeah and that is what probably 90% of the public thought at that point because they hadn't seen her in a movie you know within the world of the film like oh I thought she was dead oh she's not dead okay then maybe I can get an autograph (laughs) you know they're expendable. And then DeMille says, turn that light back where it belongs. Which again, you know, every single line is is just is dripping with subtext. It's incredible. One fun fact about that scene was that was an actual working set. That was the set of Samson and Delilah that Cecil B. DeMille was literally shooting at the time. So they oh, were, really? yes, they shot on a working set, which I think is so cool. Um, so as Billy Wilder, he's such an excellent writer. Everything that needs to be there is there. Like, he's known for his dialogue. He's known for being very precise. There's nothing extra added that you don't need. But then he also doesn't want to distract you with camera work. He's very specific with camera shots, and he doesn't do a lot with the camera because he says he doesn't want the audience to get distracted. He wants them to focus on, like, what is being said. And I think that is so interesting as a director, as a writer. Those are the choices he makes. That is really interesting. I still have to go back and watch it again. And I will say something else about Norma Desmond was Edith Head uh, was the costume designer for this. And she had a really good quote about like costuming for Norma. She said, Norma was someone who had become lost in her own imagination. I tried to make her look like she was always impersonating someone. 
And so when you think about the movie that way, there is no herself. Norma Desmond is not a real person. She is only the different acting images she creates in every single scene. She gives us every single character. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes she's playing the ingenue. Sometimes she's playing the villain. We don't actually know who Norma Desmond is and you get the sense she doesn't know herself because she was 17 years old when she makes these pictures. She has no identity outside the pictures. She only knows how to put on another character. And that's what she's doing throughout the film. Norma Desmond is the role of her life. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I never thought about it that way. Gloria Swanson was not as fucked up as Norma Desmond. I just want to put that out there for you. (laughs) So no one at home get worried. She actually did have a lovely career. Her career was similar to Norma Desmond in that she fell out of popularity in the 30s, but she actually produced some of her own films, which I think is fucking cool. And what she ended up doing was she didn't really make it work in a lot of the talkies. Like, she was fine, but her career didn't go great. So she switched over to radio, theater, and television, and she had, like, a perfectly fine career in those fields. When they approached her to do this, uh, they were like, will you audition for this role? And she was like, if they want to see me audition, go watch my 12 films I made for Paramount. And then they were like, no, but please, for serious audition, because this is going to be the role of your lifetime. And she said she's also glad that she did it because she got paid more doing the movie than she was getting for her radio work. So she was like, it was a great financial decision as well. <laughs> she made $25 for the whole picture. She retired off of it. Um, and then she said after this, people kept trying to rewrite Norma Desmond and have her do it, and it never worked. So she just went because back to television. The person who wrote it the first time wrote from the heart, and it was something that was truthful to them. And when people try to ape it and repeat it, it doesn't work. Yep. And something else Billy Wilder did that you just reminded me of was he would write a script. He wrote this with Charles Brackett. But what he would do is he would tweak it for whoever was in the picture. Um, So it's like he wrote this, but then once she came on board, he specifically tailored it to her. So she's giving you this performance that he has altered in every way, shape, and form to her advantage. And he does that with all of his movies that he writes. And so many of his actors get nominated for awards. And it's because he has tailored these things to them. He says it's easier to make a film good that way. And I was like, yeah, that's that's a great idea. You're correct. Yeah, I've found that if you're writing something, it's always good to have an actor or an actress in mind. You know, if you can hear the lines coming in through their voice, it definitely colors the writing. Uh, one other thing that I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before was when he's pitching to Sheldrake. Sheldrake is drinking like a massive glass of milk. And at one point he he just burps. It reminds me of like you go into the audition and, you know, the auditor is, is in the middle of feeding an enormous Subway sandwich or something, you know. This dude's like, yeah, OK, what do you got? Oh, by the way, I need to get my two percent in today. So I'll, I'll just be pounding this while you desperately try to make uh, your living off of, of me. Well, and it's just so uncouth. Like we have these grand ideas about what it's like to make a movie, what it's like to be a movie star. These are all just people. They're people the same way that you and I are. People at work. That's for the pulling back the curtain of, here's the real thing. People burp in your pitch meetings while they're drinking their milk. Right. I love it. Do you know who they pitched this movie to before they pitched it to Gloria Swanson? Do you want to hear the people that could have been Norma Desmond and who she was based on? Sure. So when they were originally conceiving this movie, there were a couple of stars that they sort of like based it on. So it's not all based on one person because not all one person had all of these ailments. So they based it on several different people. So for um, like like reclusiveness, they based it on Mary Pickford and Pola Negri. I am not a silent film expert. I should just put that out there. No, I'm not either. That's not my genre. Right. Sorry, people at home. Oh, I did also put the wax people. I wrote down the real names. The only one I knew was Buster Keaton. He was the only one I recognized and knew. 
But the other two were H.B. Warner and Anna Q. Nilsson. And I was like, I don't, I don't know you. I'm the same way. I'm not a silent film person, but I, I, they're, they're real stars. Yeah, they were real stars. <laughs> they were real stars. And if, at the time, you would have known them. So that's something. For sure. Yeah, no, it was like big cameos. It was like, oh, look who's there. Yeah. And we get a Hedda Hopper cameo at the end. She was a famous gossip columnist. She's... Oh, right. She's on the phone, right? Yeah. And then Cecil B. DeMille, obviously, who acts great. And you're like, well, Cecil, look at you. All right, so they were the reclusive people, Mary Pickford and Pola Negri. Negri, I don't know. And then people that had mental disorders who were also silent film actresses, Valeska Surratt and Clara Bow. See, this is this is the tragedy of the film industry, right? Is that years later, was was it 70, 80 years later, two schmucks on a podcast sit down and can't even pronounce your name. And these were like massive stars. Like uh, you'd walk down the street, anybody could have told you these people's names. It's the streets that got small. That's a, an amazing line, by the way. And I love that scene so much because the first time we see Norma Desmond, we talked about it, it's through this like, gross, grimy, dusty windowsill, which, fun fact, the cinematographer would put dust on the cameras before the grimy scenes to make them look extra dusty, which I love. But she's wearing sunglasses. It's the only time I feel like she's really wearing sunglasses, and she takes them off for Joe. She shows us her eyes, and her eyes are so expressive. Gloria Swanson's eye acting is incredible. Sometimes I got distracted by her word acting, because I'd say, ooh, it's like she evens out throughout the film, because by the end, she's impeccable. She's so funny. She goes for it 110% in every scene. It shouldn't always work. It does always work. And I know that she's also like going through like a breakdown, but like, it's so funny. (laughs) She's just, she's so good. It's like she somehow gets acclimated to film again, because I think she hadn't made a film in a very long time, even if you're doing television and stuff. That's a different art form. But her talking was distracting to me sometimes in the beginning because she does that thing of the time where she's like, and you're like, what? Stop. <laughs> Just say words like a person. But you always know where she's she at because of her eyes. She her eyes are beyond expressive. So you're never in doubt as to what's going on because you can follow her eyeballs. But then she figures talking out and it's great. I did write down that she kind of talked like Mae West. Like early on, I felt like she was doing a Mae West impression. But then that ties full circle back to the people that were potentially going to be in this. So they, first they asked Mae West. And she was like, um, first of all, I'm offended that you do not think I'm sexy. I am the sexiest human around. F you, go away. So they wanted her and Marlon Brando. That was like their original idea oh, who was going to do this. Huh. And then they were like, okay, that's not going to work. Then it was Greta Garbo. She was not interested in the script. They asked Pola Negri, that woman whose name I don't know. They talked to her on the phone, but her accent was too thick. They asked Norma Shearer, who was famous from like The Women. She kind of kept her career through talkies. And they were going to pair her with Fred McMurray. He was in Double Indemnity, which is another Billy Wilder film. But that didn't go through. And then um, they wanted Mary Pickford... And they were going to pair her with Montgomery Clift, but she was offended by the dating someone younger thing. Montgomery Clift was signed to do this film. He had a contract. He was set to do it. And he ended up breaking the contract right before filming. And I guess it was because he was having an affair with someone and wanted to see them. But he also had done a film called The Heiress, and he felt like this was too similar to that. So Paramount went, who do we got? Who's around? Ah! And then they were like, we got this guy, Bill Holden. Remember him? He did Golden Boy a decade ago, and he hasn't done anything too great since he got back from World War II, but let's give him a try. And it fucking launched his career. He's one of the biggest movie stars of the 50s because of this movie. Yeah. Uh, Fred McMurray would have been good in this role, too, but it's hard to imagine it with anybody other than William Holden at this point. 
William Holden, um, his first big break in film was Golden Boy, which he does with Barbara Stanwyck, who is one of my all-time favorite actresses. I love her so much. And she kind of mentors him. He served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Air Force, and he acted in their training films, which I really enjoy. Oh, wow. So he ends up coming back from the war. They put him in a bunch of like, meh kind of pictures. Can't find a place for him. This year is his huge break because he does Sunset Boulevard and he does Born Yesterday. And Born Yesterday is also a really cool, really wonderful movie. Um, he's one of the biggest movie stars of the 1950s. Some of his other films are Stalag 17, also written by Billy Wilder. He wins an Academy Award for it. Born Yesterday, I mentioned. Sabrina, he does. He ends up dating Audrey Hepburn on set during that movie. They break up because he can't be real serious about her and has a drinking problem. So that's a thing. Um, he does The Country Girl. He does Picnic. He does The Bridge on the River Kwai. Paris When It Sizzles. His career kind of goes out for a while, uh, doesn't make so many films, and then has a comeback with The Wild Bunch, and then The Towering Inferno in the 70s, and then one of his epic films, Network. He has a huge film in 1976, Network. So that's kind of like his career. He was the best man at Ronald Reagan's wedding in 1952, so that's a thing that happened. He Thrilling. is an alcoholic. He killed someone. I didn't know this till today. He killed someone in a drunk driving incident in 1966 and served no jail time because he's a famous person. Wow, that's horrible. It's really that's terrible. absolutely horrible. It's absolutely terrible. Okay, so so you, I told you there were a few things that could make me enjoy this movie less, but you might have just hit one in the, in the wind column. But wait, there's more. It's a good thing he did. Well, because the way he dies is incredibly tragic, and that might make you go, oh, God. But a good thing he did was he was super into wildlife conservation, and so he set up, a, um, like, a wildlife conservation thing in Africa and Kenya and has saved the lives of so many animals, so that's cool. I didn't even say But the way that he died, he died because of drinking. He was drunk. He slipped on a rug while he was drunk, and he lacerated his forehead on his bedside table in 1981. And he died from the head wound, from bleeding on the floor of his Santa Monica apartment, which is incredibly tragic. What a way to go. Um, but yes, this man clearly had some drinking issues, and I wish he had resolved them and not killed anyone, is how I feel about that. Um, I will. Yeah, I think you're on to something. Also say, he dated Stephanie Powers. His last relationship was Stephanie Powers. And she's on the show Heart to Heart. And when she's doing Heart to Heart, they were in love and together. And then he died during Heart to Heart, I think in season three. And so that's when you go, oh, she was coping with the death of William Holden. But he, that's pretty sad. he got her into wildlife conservation. And so she still conserves wildlife. So there's all of So it. that's his legacy. That's his legacy. That's his true legacy, wildlife yeah. conservation. Yeah. And then we have Eric von Stroheim, also an Austrian Jew, but his family emigrated earlier, 1909. He directed 12 films, had a reputation for being difficult and meticulous. And he directed some things like The Merry Widow, Wedding March and Greed, but not The Merry Widow that you think, because that's what I thought. I was like, oh, The Merry Widow. It's not that one. It's the one that you haven't heard of and haven't seen. Noted. Yep. Okay. That's, I mean, oh, and as a fun side fact, Nancy Olson was in The Absent-Minded Professor. Because you know, you're watching her and you're going, how do I know you? And you're like, oh, yeah, you're a flubber lady. I, I saw that movie a lot as a yeah. kid. She's, she's yeah. flubber. She's in Pollyanna. She played flubber. She played the, the flubber. flubber. She was the flubber. 
Do you have anything else you want to add? Well, no, the part where he's in his car and he's just like talking to himself and he's sort of just like sort of grumbling about about like, oh, how many of you people could go out to L.A. and give it a shot and try to make it in Hollywood? Give me a break. He's just sort of like getting mad. And then he notices the repo men like parked across the street and he cuts off his own inner monologue. So (laughs) he literally is like, I mean, how many... Uh oh! <laughs> <Then> it just <laughs> stops. Yeah. The narration just stops, and he starts like the, yeah. that. And the fact that the opening of the film is narrated by a dead man are two really interesting narration points in this film. Because normally, when a film is narrated by someone, you assume they're going to make it out. Yeah. Like he's narrating from the grave. He's like, "Yep, that's me. I'm dead, lying in the pool. Well, I bet you're wondering how I got there." Like, I remember the first time I watched it, getting to the end of me, like, but he makes it because he's narrating. I was like, oh, no, he doesn't. He actually does not. That's interesting in and of itself. So that and, and him cutting off his own inner monologue are just two things that I love in this movie. Normally, the trope we see that in is the detective. Like, it's always the detective film. We don't ever hear an inner narration monologue from, like, the ne'er-do-well. So it just took, right. like, a really cool storytelling trope from another genre, but utilized it like to perfection in this movie. Yeah, and it's why it plays with the idea of what a noir is. It plays with the idea of your quote-unquote hard-boiled detective. He's just a down-on-his-luck schmuck. It plays with all that stuff. It's a genre unto itself. Just another one or two minor things that I noticed. There's another line in this movie that I hadn't picked up on before. When they're writing together, she says to him, don't you sometimes hate yourself? And he goes, constantly. (laughs) Which is a really funny line to show up in a 1950s movie um though the only other thing i was gonna say is when she hires him to write her movie she does it based on his astrological signs so if you think that things change they don't change la has been la for a long long time so that was funny i thought but also that was a super 1920s thing oh really that was like what stars in the 1920s did it was a lot of astrology stuff so i just felt that was like oh yeah that's like a such a yeah specifically in the 20s astrology was like a big thing i love that when she brings him into like the main room to show him the script, there's just like this weird sound. And she's like, ah, it's just the wind blowing through the pipe organ. Like there's just like constantly a weird creepy sound that's just going on in this house just all the time. Just everything about the place is just scary and uh, otherworldly. Well, think about it. Nothing good has ever happened in a house with a pipe organ that I can think of. In every movie, (laughs) that is a sign. That is a run the other way sign. Run. But I also like that they explained it because before they do that, you're thinking as a viewer that that's part of the score. And so I love that they call it out and they're like, no, that's not the score. That's the fucked up house. Right. Isn't it creepy? Right. (laughs) I do want to mention Franz Waxman did the score. It's a very good score. And he did apparently for Norma stuff. It was a tango. And he called the William um, Holden stuff bebop. The bebop side of the score. (laughs) So that was that existed. I do want to talk about um, the character of Max. And how he is her first husband. I feel like he's very Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca. Just like obsessed with this woman. And we don't talk about enough how he created her. He created this monster. Max is the one that discovered Norma. He became obsessed with her. He is kind of the reason she is the way she is potentially. Let's blame it on him. I mean, Madame is the biggest star of them all. He's the one propping up the lie. He will not let it go. He's literally writing her fan mail. Obviously, there's a commentary there on, you know, the director plucking the star from obscurity and driving them insane, basically, with their own sort of creative vision, thinking that their own creative vision is more important than this person's actual life. 
by the end, he gets what he wanted too. He's back behind the camera. He's directing again. It's a symbiotic uh, relationship. They both get what they want at the end. He's directing. She's on camera. She gets back on camera, but it's not at all in the way that she wanted to be on camera. He's he's directing news crews to shoot the last real footage. So it'll be shot of her before she's lugged off to prison. He seems aware at the end, Max does, of what is happening. Like he knows how to coax her down the stairs. So my question is, he's been loyal to her this whole film. Is it really just so he can give her what she wants, this moment in front of the cameras? Or do you think that's a moment of him like letting it go essentially and being like, well, she did the ultimate bad thing. She killed someone. Nothing more I can do here. She's yours, fellas. Like which way do you think it goes? He's crazy too. I mean, I, I think he's he's lost his mind as well, and um, he's completely infatuated with her. He's never lost that side of him, and now his mission has been accomplished. He's been trying to return her to stardom, or maybe it's more that he's tried to keep her under the guise that she is still a star, and now he can prove it. You are a star. Look at all these cameras. Look at all these people. I told you, we're going to make a movie. Here we are. We're doing it. We're making like he is doing what he set out to do, but it's in this crazy backward way that like no normal person would be like, oh, look, they're making a movie. Look, there's a part where she's looking at herself in the mirror and everything she does is through a mirror. It's all on the other side of the of the looking glass. They live in this alternate reality where time hasn't stopped, but it is moving real slowly and things are coming apart at the scenes as, as time slowly rips this house apart. It's so funny that you use that phrase at the seams because that was a phrase used about Billy Wilder's way of filmmaking, how he could do a noir in sunny LA and it all is stitched up together perfectly and you can't see the seams. That was the phrase used about his filmmaking. But I was just thinking about how Norma cannot adapt and I guess the key to all of this is being able to adapt. So the reason that Nancy Olson's character, Betty Schaefer, is doing so well is she can consistently adapt oh, I'm not going to be an actor. I've grown up loving this business and I still have a positive idea about it, but I can see the business for what it is. She can adapt. So it's like if Norma could adapt, it goes back to that line about being 50, like you were saying. I'm wondering if Norma could have adapted. She could have adapted right. to talkies. She could have adapted to the stage. There's many other options. She could have done what Gloria Swanson did in real life. So an inability to adapt. Well, Betty, it's not just that she adapts. It's also that she's young. She's young and, and she's hungry. And, and, you know, you can replace like Norma being like, talk, talk, talk. We didn't need all the talk with like some other film stars being pushed out right now being like, TikTok, TikTok. What is this TikTok? But, you know, in my day, we didn't do TikToks. You move to LA and you audition for a film. It's the same story being told again. Like the younger people are able to adapt to the new trends and able to take them on and like, and roll with the punches. And Older people get to a certain age where they're like, excuse me, I know the right way. Like, I see it happening with myself. Like, where I'm like, uh, I think I know the right way to write a movie and watch a good movie. And it's like, there's like throngs of younger people who are like, you don't, you don't know shit, dude. You have no idea what anybody likes anymore. So it's, it's that she's, she can adapt and that she's, she's young. She, she's aware, you know. There's references that she would get that Norma would, yeah. you know? It's funny that you're saying this. I'm like, I know what the people want. They want a podcast about classic movies, and they want me to yell facts about these movies into their ears. I'm pretty sure this is exactly what the people want. Sure, yeah. I do think, though, 
What I was admiring about um, Betty Shaver's character too is is that I feel like she goes into this business having seen the underbelly and understanding what it's like because she grew up in it. And I think Norma Desmond only had the upward climb until it was downward. She never saw the underbelly until the decline was happening. Yes, Betty Shaver's younger, but she also has a different perspective on the whole business than Norma Desmond does. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, I also wanted to say you talked about her with mirrors. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of a cool fact that I learned today. The way that they shot that opening sequence of William Holden in the pool was through mirrors. They couldn't figure out a way to get the camera underwater and have that shot work. They tried like a special box that they put the camera in to shoot it upward and it looked Mm. like shit in the water. So they found a way to do it with mirrors and that's all shot um, through a mirror to get his that whole opening thing that's really interesting really cool well she says when they're walking down that uh studio set she's like ah mirrors it's all it's all fake like when they're when they're walking through the studio and then that's an actual part of making this film mirrors it was all fake so smart do you think they wrote that line because they did that in the picture who knows there's so many different layers and so many different things going on one other thing i noticed too was the cars how it all starts because of a car and then her career kind of like ends because of a car. They just want her car. And I was like, ooh. That's true, too. I, yeah. yeah, I never picked up on that before either. You're right. And the fact that it's an old car, too, that it's like they don't even want you. They just want your old car. Your old weird car. Your old weird car has aged better than you, a person. It has more value than you, a human being, in pictures at this point. We would rather have your car than you. Oof. Well, to be fair, she was writing a terrible script about Salome, and I don't want to watch a movie about Salome. But what is Salome about, right? It's about it was a woman who's served a man's head on a platter. I mean, there's a metaphor in there, you know, and probably something that she can <laughs> she can relate to. But you know, look, she's trying. You know, she's doing the the equivalent of uh, of a web series these days. You know, she's just not any good at it. That's all. It's just not, you know, the business is just passed her by and she's not going to catch up. If she had just let him write a script for her, it would have been better than the script she wrote for herself. Some of the dialogue I marked down, he says to her, it could use a little bit more dialogue. And she goes, what for? I can say anything I want with my eyes. And I was like, yes, yes. She hates that. So good. The chimp references. He's the chimp dancing for pennies. And the chimp died in the beginning. I was like, oh, I see what you're saying there. You're her monkey, her dancing monkey. She had a dancing monkey that died and she buried it in a coffin. And you're going to be her next dancing Mm -hmm. monkey. I see you. Mm -hmm. And then I do want to also talk about the quote that we have not referenced yet. When he says, you're Norma Desmond. You used to be, you know, big movie star. And she goes, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. And I love that line a lot. Yeah, it's incredible. I just want to walk around my apartment saying these lines like her, just doing an impression of her. Not actually being her because I don't want to be an insane person, but she's fun to to emulate and to say her, her lines. Big time. She knows exactly who she is and at the same time has no idea. Like she has a whole, yeah, back pocket full of one-liners ready to go, which you probably had to have at that time to make it in this industry. But she has absolutely no idea who she actually is. She's living off of a script, which is ironic because she's a silent film star. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to say before we go, one other thing about this movie is they show us Schwab's Pharmacy, which is like a very iconic place in old Hollywood that we don't even have anymore. Um, but I just love that that was like the place that you would go to see and meet people. And then just an annoyance factor for me, they're in that car and they're going to go visit her friends, 
I'm sorry, you're in Beverly Hills. How the hell is the closest drugstore the one in Hollywood? Well, where are they going? We don't know. They said they're going to her friend's house to play bridge. So I was like, well, where the hell does your friend live? Schwab's, that whole like thing where he's like, this is just where we hung out. Like, like that just made me like think like, oh man, I can't wait till this pandemic is over. <laughs> like I just miss gathering spots like that so much, especially like, and like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like in LA where you walk in and like every single person's on their computer working on a script or something. And it's just like, I mean, that's one of the things that drives me nuts about LA, but also that I like about it is that there's always somebody working on something. There's always somebody trying to break down the door and, you know, get their foot in. And um, they're just hanging out at the lunch counter, like having a coffee. I was like, oh man, I, I want to do that again. Yeah, I totally <laughs> feel that. Well, and I just had like a an idea that's making this full circle. The other kind of old thing that doesn't exist anymore that they used to reference a lot is the Brown Derby. And I'm thinking back to how maybe most people in our generation might know William Holden in general is because of I Love Lucy. The first time I ever saw him was in I Love Lucy. And I think it has something to do with the Brown Derby, his episode. Oh, I don't know. It's like they go to the Brown Derby to see the celebrities and I think they see William Holden there. And so that would have been like the other iconic thing of the day that isn't opened anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's like all old Hollywood. That's how it, the way my brain worked. And then when I was saying it out loud, I was like, oh, this isn't hitting with you. From the start, the references were a little over my head and I just wasn't <laughs> able to piece it together in, in a meaningful way. That doesn't mean that your audience won't. You know, I'm not telling you to cut it, but I am saying I think there were a lot of good points to take the episode out on. Yeah, and yep. I hope you'll you'll choose one of those, or or who knows, maybe you'll choose this, and maybe this will be how it goes out, and it'll be a little more of a, of a apologetic ending. But you can choose okay. that too. I think this is going to make the episode. Actually, I think this is going to make it. Actually, I do think I think this will make the. So episode. we've reached the double feature portion of our program, where I tell you if you liked this, hey, check this out next. This movie is incredibly tricky to pair with the double feature because it has so many various elements and it's a special, unique film. I feel like All About Eve would be a good one to watch this with because it's like, that's the underbelly yeah, of for sure. the theater world. An actress who's being aged out, being replaced by someone younger kind of vibe. The dual sides of like the positive aspects, but also like the cutthroat negative aspects of that career. So that. I read this book, In a Lonely Place, and I loved the book so much. And I felt like it was kind of a feminist version of, it's a feminist noir. So it's like toxic masculinity gets fixed by women. <laughs> so I loved it. It's a murder mystery. Um, but here's the thing. I've never seen the film that was based on it. So Oh, it's good. Okay. Good, good, good. Humphrey Bogart's in it. I know it's a Nicholas Ray film, but I feel like that would be a good pair with this just from what I know about it. Am I correct about this? Uh, yes, it definitely would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yay! Okay. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane would be a good thing to watch with this because, like, you've got a psychotic former star who just wants to be a star again. And it's very, like, insidious and grotesque. Ace in the Hole and The Bad and the Beautiful. Those are all the movies that I would watch with this. The Bad and the Beautiful is more of a melodrama. It's got the whole, like, the producer that will do anything to get the films made. Excellent. Thanks. Excellent choices. I would say Double Indemnity is a good one to pair with this one. Another Billy Wilder. It's it's not necessarily similar plot-wise, but if you're kind of into the vibe that this is setting up, I think that's another movie where you kind of can't go wrong. It's just sort of another perfectly made film. The other one that I'll recommend is Scarlet Street, which is an Edward G. Robinson noir. It's very, very dark. It's <laughs> not, not Hollywood-related uh, uh, per se, but there is a fair amount of manipulation I won't say too much about it, but it's a great movie and an old noir from 1945. So 
So um, it's a Fritz Lang movie. Love Fritz Lang. Yeah, we talked about we yeah, talked about that on our podcast. Um, so those are guys. Those are some great movies to check out. Check them out if you would like to. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. It was lovely having you. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's always a treat to watch Sunset Boulevard again. And, and it was a, a treat to talk to you. Awesome. Right back at you. So uh, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You've been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Daniel Strauss. He will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening.